Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, Sunday morning. I'm going to do possibly a slightly different type of of talk, a podcast. This is uh, t- tomorrow's Tuba Shabbat. That's my brother's yard site. So I'm doing this one in memory of my brother, Ari Levenger, who died in 2000. I mean, in other words, 22 years ago. It's being sponsored by his kids, Yosh, Rachel, or whoever else. And um, <clears throat> my brother is actually a half-brother. That's my name is Katz. His name is Levenger. Um, because it's from the Holocaust, you understand? He was born in 44, in August of 44, 1944. Um, as I've mentioned many times, I don't know if people remember, when it comes to the Holocaust, it's like a, yeah, a geography and time had a lot to do with things. And <clears throat> my mother and uh, her child lived in Slovakia. And... Um, the countries that were, as I've said over and over again, I think last week we spoke about the Belzerub or something, that the countries that were physically occupied by the Germans, they went after and killed all the Jews. And the countries that were not physically occupied by the Germans, in other words, the fascist states that genuinely were allies of Hitler, he didn't bother to send the German army in. He didn't need to. So that was good for the Jews in relative terms because as long as you're not dealing with Hitler directly with the Germans... Maybe to bribe your way, get something ain't up, you know, use all kind of external pressures, America, the Vatican, things like that. It's a major part of the story of the Holocaust. Now, my mother and brother lived in Slovakia, which was not Czechoslovakia, but Slovakia. Which, if you know anything about history, was a separate country during World War II and is a separate country today as we speak. Um, without getting bogged down too much in details. I actually gave a talk on this at my nephew's house a couple months ago uh, in Muncie. Uh, but there used to be a country called Czechoslovakia. The Slovaks were not so crazy about being members of Czechoslovakia. And Hitler played into that. And he said, if I take over, I'll make Slovakia a completely independent country from the Czechs. And the Slovaks liked that, or a lot of them did. And as a result, there was a country called Slovakia in this during the Second World War. The uh, president was this Catholic priest, Father Tiso, and they were pretty damn anti-Semitic. They were. However, um, since he wasn't German, and he was a Catholic priest, and the Pope could never come out and say he's totally in favor of killing all the Jews, men, women, and children, because that's against the teaching of the Church, even though the Pope turned a blind eye and let a lot of it happen, as we know, so complicated matters. In addition to what I just said, this is the Weissmandel story, or to be more accurate, a number of Jews, including Weissmandel, Rabbi Weissmandel, but including others who were not from at all, <clears throat> figured out a way, without going through the details, to bribe the Germans in charge of deportations. So in other words, in 1942, as the Nazis were cleaning out Europe from the Jews, in 41 they shot all the people 
in the eastern part of Europe. In um, eastern, you know, in uh, Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. They just shot them. One and a half million people with bullets. But in 42, they switched to concentration camps or extermination camps with the gas chambers and all that stuff. And then they went about the business with great efficiency, as we're all sorry to acknowledge, of exterminating all the Jews in, millions in, in, in behind the German lines, and those in Poland and in other countries as well. And during the course of 1942, they did a pretty good job of, of exterminating most of the Jews in Poland by millions. Plus, Jews in other countries like Holland, for example, and in uh, France, whatever. And so, the result is that Eichmann and those guys went to Slovakia and said, give us your Jews, we'll take them off your hands. And, make a long story short, they gave them away two-thirds, but the last third they didn't give away. That's where we- that's what Weissmandel and company were able to effect. That they were able to save 35%, something like that. They weren't able to save 65%, and so my mother had siblings and stuff like that who were in the wrong place at the wrong time and were carried off and killed in round one in 42. Uh, but if you were in the, I'll use the word lucky in relative terms, I mean Holocaust, you know, but I'm using relative terms. If you're in the lucky last third that wasn't taken away, so then for the rest of 1942 and the whole of 1943 and most of 1944, they were not taken away to be killed. It was an anti-Semitic state. There were all kind of xeras and laws and stuff like that. There were. But in the in, in the calculus of the Holocaust, it always boils down, were they killing them or not? You know, were they taking them off to, to extermination camps and putting them in gas chambers and finishing them off or not? So my mother was from the last third. And that's when, she, in fact, and she got married in between 40... Two and, and 44. And therefore, she had a baby at the very end of this period when it was relatively safe in August of 44. Uh, the reason I say that is because since the country of Slovakia was genuinely pro Hitler, Hitler didn't bother to send the German army in there. Consequently, as far as being sent to extermination camps are concerned, you were safer in Slovakia than almost anywhere else. Um, Because Hungary, which was next door to Slovakia, uh, was safe until, um, I guess, March or so, February, March of 44. That's because at that point, the Hungarians tried to switch sides. They saw that the Germans were losing the war. When Hitler found out they're trying to switch sides, he got angry and sent the army in, and they took over Hungary and proceeded the extermination of the Hungarian Jews. But the government in Slovakia never did do that. Father Tiso, they never said, let's switch sides. They were quite aware that if the Allies win, Slovakia will cease to be an independent state, and the Czechs will come and take over again, which is what happened. Consequently, they never were anything other than loyal allies of Hitler. So from the very narrow point of view of like my mother, for example, and her family, her husband and child, or soon-to-be-born child, if you lived in Slovakia, in relative terms, you were basically safer there than you were in Hungary 
from February, March, April, May, June, July, August. Um, in in uh, Slovakia, isn't that funny? It's weird. So I mean, you know, you had to know how to keep jumping from uh, frying pan to frying pan to avoid getting burnt. And the trouble is, now let me put it this way: from the point of view of the Jews and their safety, like my mother and like Weissmandel and so many others, the best situation would have been that Slovakia should have continued to be what it was. And all throughout 1944, they should have continued to be totally loyal allies of Hitler into 45. And the German army would never be there. Maybe at the last minute they would come in to fight the Russians or something like that. But the Russians would come in as they did, at least in April of 45. You understand what I'm saying? And therefore, the Jews would never actually be, be taken away. The last third would have remained there. From the point of view of the survival of the Kleistral, which is what we're interested in, that would have been the best. The trouble is that a bunch of Slovaks on their own decided to make an uprising against the government because they were like pro-ally and that kind of thing. Now, they're going, they didn't think about the Jewish point of view. They're thinking about their point of view. And so, and the British encouraged them and so forth, and Banka Bistritsa. And they launched an uprising, I think, I believe in, in September or so, of uh, 44. And that got Hitler ticked off. This is late in the war, you understand? It's late in the war. We're talking September of 44. The war had another seven, eight months to go, right? I mean, you're talking about September, October, November, December, that's four. January, February, March, April, it's eight months to go. So, if only they wouldn't have launched an uprising. <laughs> you get it? But they did. Hitler got PO'd and he sent in the German army. Oh, once he sent in the German army, he sent in the Gestapo and all that stuff, the SS, and they went after all the Jews. And this is when the uh, Holocaust hit the Jews of Slovakia as it done with others. Um, it was late in the war, but they still had enough time, those momsers, to ship people off to Auschwitz and that sort of thing. That's what they did. So, uh, on the other hand, if you know the technical stories, some Jews hid in bunkers, things like that. <clears throat> in the case of my mother, so that means that my brother, whose yard site is tomorrow, uh, what happened with him was that um, <laughs> he was born just, just at the very end of the good period, if I can call it that. And a month, not long after he was born... The Germans invaded. And there's a whole bunch of mice I'm not going to go into now. And uh, his father, my mother's first husband, was killed. So my brother basically didn't grow up not having a father. You know, you understand that. And how he survived the war was crazy, you know, you know, for the next eight months. I've spoken about that elsewhere. And but that's simply what I'm talking about. And then, um, some, that's how my mother and, and child survived the war. She was at Almona. And I'll give you a family history over here. <laughs> and uh, what happened then was, when the war was over, so life resumed. And my mother had a good job, actually, after the war was over in, in, in Pressburg and in Bratislava. 
And she stayed there until 1949, where um, she was able to get to America. That's Like I say, I'm skipping a lot of stuff, just giving the basics. So my brother came to this country when he's five years old, you know, no, knowing nothing. So this is my era, you understand? I mean, I came from a later marriage and born later. But in my Kufa, I'm talking to a lot of people listening on podcasts that are younger than myself. To you, the Holocaust is just like some distant Zach, you know, like Chmelnitsky. But if you came up in my generation growing up, it was, it was all around you, you understand? And uh, I was by far the only person in my time whose parents went through the war and had half-brothers and half-sisters and this and that and the other because all the parents, as in the case of myself, remarried after the war. And so basically there's family number one and family number two, if you follow what I mean. Uh, and it was very common, Okay. Today, that we're in year 20, year 2022, I'm talking about stuff that's, oh, from 1940, it's almost 80 years later. Almost almost 80 years later. So it's like a whole door, you know. Uh, so I'm in the middle, <laughs> you know. I have one foot planted in the past and one foot planted in modernity. <clears throat> that's, uh, yeah, that's who I am. Now, um, <clears throat> in the case of my uh, brother, so what happened was, he came here, he was five years old, of course he couldn't speak English, and they lived, this is, I'm telling you my story, but it's very common, you know, those of you who have grandparents, I imagine, thinking, you know, you'll hear such stories, and for a while they lived with my mother's brother, who took him in, in Minneapolis, for a couple of years, that's why once in a while, when people write me back and forth, I always say, oh, how old are you from Minneapolis, Maybe I had an uncle there who taught in the Talmud Torah, and so on and so forth, and then, for uh, uh, after a year or two, so she moved to Baltimore, Maryland, because uh, it was a better Yiddishkeit situation and a better Shaduchim situation, because people after the war wanted to move on with their lives if it's possible. If it's possible. Uh, Minneapolis is a nice community, it still is, but Baltimore is much bigger. And as a result, when my mo- when they moved to Baltimore, Eventually, you know, people set her up, and this and the other. Eventually, she met my father, who also had lost a family in the war. Uh, and they got married, and I came along, and a sister of mine. So I grew up with a brother much older than myself, and with a different last name. Um, and, and with a different background. Knows I had a father and a mother. You know what I mean? And he didn't. I mean, he had a stepfather. And he had to make his way in life. This is interesting. So he came up, this is somebody who came up in the 50s and the very early 60s. He graduated in 62 high school. Uh, so that was at Takufa in America of the 50s, which is very different than later uh, uh, Takufas. And after high school, he tried this, that, and the other. Eventually, he was one of these people who wanted to get ahead of life in his own. And eventually, he got into a business that Worked for him, and he built it up very big. And you know, when the uh, uh, textiles and import export and that kind of stuff, which was, and he was just at the time when the Japanese were getting big into this. So he rode that wave, and uh, so he was able to, you know, to make a, a thing. He got married, and had a family, and uh, you know, this is like I say, this is my life, this is his life, and uh, unfortunately, he had a heart attack. You know, in 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 uh, on, on Friday night, I might say. In the year 2000. And so this is where we're, you know, uh, paying tribute to the memory today.
paying attention to the memory, especially um, he was the, like many of us. You know, he was determined that you know, uh, how do you say it? We'll make this work. You know, say so Hitler destroyed our past, but we can rebuild Yiddishkeit in the future. Okay, based on that generation, he was you know a, a generous person and gave to a lot of yeshivas and that sort of thing. And maybe uh, Zochet, you know, they have children, grandchildren from them. That's the that's the big thing. So when they asked me to say um, do a, a talk this morning, I said, yeah, sure. I mean, I'll do it anyway. Now, I don't want to do a biography. It's not in the mood. But I want to um, say a few words, and not very long, along the lines of what I spoke about last night. I think, as many of you know, I do this um, Saturday night lecture series, mostly Shabbos, here in town in Baltimore at Chumri Muna Congregation. Uh, this is These are, are videos. So knows I do it in in, in person. We have a, a, a audience this year. The brave souls are coming back after Corona. A lot of people not. And I'm doing uh, as I do every year. Four years in the history of Israel and the Jewish people. And I've done it for many years. And this current year we're doing 1988 to 1992. So it's within memory. And um, my team, after it's all over, they put this up online. Uh, far fewer people to watch the videos than listen to the podcast, but that's how you know the dynamics where people can listen audio when they're driving and all that sort of thing. But it's all up online. Uh, and, you know, in my YouTube site. And this is Modern History. <clears throat> Last night, I, every year when I do a series on modern Jewish history, one of the talks I do is the State of Israel and the Jewish Religion. You know, Every four years by four years. So we'd be talking about the state of Israel and the Jewish religion uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. Which has its special features, but I'm not going to cause it a whole speech over. But only to make one or two points. We live in a time when um, political discourse is very uh, bitter. And I would say in general in America, Bechlau, and among the Jews also, the middle is folded. And instead, the margins are uh, are are very active, very uh, dynamic. The margins, the extremes. Uh, this is certainly true in Judaism, and there's no middle ground. You know, either you're from or you're not. I mean, that's the bottom line. Uh, and this is in Israel. It's true in a different way than it is in America, but it's broadly true. And that's how it goes. There are historical reasons for that, and one of the historical reasons has to do with the following. So I'm going to be, as I say, speaking in kind of broad terms now, um, in what I usually don't do when I do these uh, podcasts, and uh, share some ideas. Um, if you're, I'm going to speak on two tracks, the founding of the State of Israel on the one hand, and the refounding or the revival of the from world on the other hand. Um, in the case of the former, the history of the Jews is one of Kehillahs. I think you know that, if you've ever listened to me, or others. In old days, long ago, let's say a couple hundred years ago and before that, Jews almost never lived as individual citizens of a 
of a country or kingdom came out never. Because all those countries and kingdoms were always religious-based, Muslim or, or Christian, and a Jew was neither. So instead, it was always a, you know, what's the expression? A square peg in a round hole or something like that? So, you know, how do you, if you choose to let Jews live among you, so how do, how do you deal with them legally, administratively, and so forth? Because the laws are all for Christians, or the laws are all for Muslims based around their religious laws. And the answer was that Jews had autonomous coercive communities. The Jews were given a certain amount of autonomy. And therefore the Kehillah was an autonomous uh, institution and was legally recognized. So for example, if you lived in Vilna, at the time of Vilna Gong, you weren't a citizen of Poland or Russia. You weren't. You were a member, according to Polish law, according to Russian law, you were a Jew, who's a citizen of the Jewish community of Vilna, which is a legally recognized institution, and which has the right to tax its members, and the money goes to the state, you know, like that, and which has the right to regulate the lives of its members, and I'm speaking specifically of coercion. So if you lived in a time in Vilna Gong, and you wanted to open your store on Saturday, they could stop you. They could beat the heck out of you. If they wanted to, they could do whatever they want. I repeat, they could do whatever they want. Even though, in Talmudic law, uh, there are limitations uh, on what a Bayesian and Kehillah can do because in formal Talmudic law, we have a pretty advanced legal culture with a high standard of due process in the absence of which you can get the case thrown out, just like in American law. So, uh, but that's in the theory. Lamai said the Kehillahs do whatever the heck they want. You get them? That's, that's the history of Judaism. I mentioned the other day in some connection with Walder. And and you saw, like the Rambam says, and I mentioned the other day, you know, a basin can do whatever the heck it feels like doing if you have a real Kehillah. The trouble nowadays is we have basins that are popping up, but we don't have Kehillahs. So therefore, you, they can only go, you read these articles in the Mishpacha Noah, they're all going strictly by Talmudic law. It's not necessarily the way that it should be done because they make Takanas and Gzairas and, and rules and regulations and... You know, that's that's how the Jews lived, because they had to. The uh, best reflection of all this is in the Shalas and Shubas of the Responsa literature. Now, the uh, Jews lived in this framework, and one of the things it did was exercise a fairly strong control over whether people could say or think. Right? Not totally, but pretty heavy. Exercise a fairly strong control over what people could say or think. So, you know, if you lived in a kill of long ago, you might think that the Torah is a made-up institution. There is no God, Bible criticism, whatever you want. But you're not going to say it. And chances are you won't even think it. Because there will be penalties on you. And they can hurt you. And uh, you might think from a Thomas Jefferson point of view that this is terrible. And I get that. But from the point of view of Jewish group survival, as a Kehillah, um, it was they thought it was good, and, and and from that narrow perspective, it was good. Okay, that's why people who deviated radically from the consensus usually try to marginalize them and kick them out. Like I mentioned last night, like Spinoza, people like that, or Shabtai Tzvi and Frank and people like that. And the whole idea was that there is a consensus of what's allowed and what's not allowed, and maybe the consensus is, is is intellectually correct, maybe it's not, 
But that's the consensus, and you got to adhere to it in broad form. That's how life was lived. Um, now, then, around 1800 or so, uh, this began to dissolve. Because the modern European state, when they gave the Jews civil rights, they abolished the Kehillahs. I mean, they abolished the Kehillahs in the sense of coercion. So, yeah, I know, Samson Ray Hirsch and the reformer fighting with the Kehillah, that Kehillah didn't have any power. Not really. Yeah, not really. Um, they had resources that they could spend on, but they couldn't force anybody to do anything. The notion that the religious coercion is acceptable in any circumstance went out the window after the French Revolution. Not overnight, but pretty quick. And so one of the results for the Jews was that the bond and glue that held them together, which was this network of Kehillahs, even though they had no formal relation one with the other, but, but it was a Matthias. So one of the results was that this bond was dissolved. And basically, if I live in, 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 in most places, just about anywhere, I can outright and say whatever I want. Nobody has the right legally to hurt me. So I could live in Vilna and be the biggest sappy in the world, and there were plenty of them. I could certainly live in Berlin and all kind of places, and nobody's the right to touch me. And if they do, I can call the cops on them. And believe you me, people did call the cops on him. And the cops could come in and, and really punish you. There are many cases of Maskilim, who the Hasidim and stuff tried to beat up, and they called the cops on him. The Russians, the Poles, whoever. And they put an end to that. Okay? They put an end to that. I'm just thinking of the, off the top of my head, I don't know why, that, you know, there was an outbreak of Frankism in Prague in, Prague in 1800. And uh, Relazer Fleckless, I spoke about it once, who was the success, uh, I'll simplify and say the successor of Nodabiuda, he really screamed at them, and like a riot broke out against them, and they called the cops, and Relazer Fleckless was put in jail, <laughs> you know, for fomenting, uh, you know, riots. So once that happened, Hutra Haritsua, anybody can say whatever you want about Judaism. You could say God doesn't exist, and you could say whatever you want. And they did. And for the rest of the 1800s, and certainly for the first half of the 1900s, there no longer existed any kind of kahil anywhere among the Ashkenazic Jews of Europe. But the Sephardim, it lasted lasted a little bit longer, but the main area of Jewish settlement was the Ashkenazim. They had the millions and millions. And if somebody wants to start Reform Judaism, you can do it. If somebody wants to start secular Judaism, you can do it. If somebody wants to start socialist Judaism, you can do it. You can be Jews for Jesus. You can be Jews for, for Freddie. You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. And nobody, you understand, it was a, it was a hefkeris, a free-for-all. And that's why in the 1800s, you know, everybody came out with different ideas. And the result was that the Jewish people, who always used to pride themselves on a tremendous achdus, even though we fight and quarrel, but still there was a fundamental achdus, but this certainly uh, shattered. And everybody said that the Kehillah is over. It's not coming back. It's something from the past. Just like the Middle Ages had all kind of primitive things, this was part of it. And now we're moving past that. Um, the firm world never could handle that. And uh, I used to do a class in responses to modernity you know, the firm world struggle with how, you know, how, how do you do it? Um, obviously, in the long run, they had to 
switch from coercion to persuasion, or what we call today kirov, <laughs> right? Um, in which I'm not forcing you, but I'm trying to persuade you, which is much more shvach. I mean, hats off to all the kirov professionals, and hats off to all the labavashlichim. I'm serious, I don't mean to be funny. But they got their work cut out for them, because Rove doesn't want to listen. So you have to redefine success as a meet. That's just the world in which we live. Okay? Um, the coercion is not an option. So believe you me, in the 1800s, the firm were hit with this like a, like a, like a two-by-four of a headlight. They didn't know what to do. The most they could do was like develop, you know, uh, especially the chazinim. Uh, how shall I say it? Social networks. So they have strong social pressure, and maybe within the group they can put tremendous pressure on you, maybe beat you up here or there, hoping you won't call the cops. You know, things like that. Marry people off young, so you won't have a chance to think. These are all classic, you know, tactics um, that you try to do to replace, with the degree you can, the, the course of power that you've lost. Now, the funny thing is, and I'm going to be modifying now what something I said last night. The funny thing is that unexpectedly, in the middle of the 20th century, well along in this process, the state of Israel was created. And once you have Medinat Israel, you have now a coercive Jewish community, <laughs> right? You have an autonomous coercive community. Matter of fact, the state of Israel, being an independent state, is more than autonomous. When our ancestors had the old Gehillas, ultimately they were always subjected to some guy, some guy at the top. If you were in Germany, so it was the German authorities had the final word. In Poland, the Polish authorities had the final word. In Italy or wherever, the Italian authorities. I mean, that's the way it went. So the Gehill always had to be very calculating on how it applied its coercive powers. They realized if they go too far... The people appeal to the Gaim, they'll go to Erkos, things like that. And, you know, the, the the whole thing will fall apart. So that's just something to recognize when you deal with the Shalos and Shuvah's literature. You know, you always have that threat that the Posik has to deal with, which is if things get out of hand, the person might call in the Gaim or whatever. Uh, that, that's how it went. But once you got the State of Israel, it's not like that. It's an independent country. There's nobody on top of them. The only thing is, the state of Israel is a non-from secular business. So it's kind of funny that the restoration of the coercive Jewish community, because Israel is a country, so it has legal power, there is coercion, like in any country, like in America. I mean, there's coercion in some areas, they have the legal rights to coerce you. You can't walk around America, hopefully, at least formally, and go and shoot people, you know, even though some places they do that, unfortunately, but you know, you know what I'm saying. So, um... The result was that uh, you have the rise of a new um, autonomous coercive community, but in a different framework. And it was not their agenda to make people from. Although, ironically, because of politics, Ben-Gurion and those guys ended up, actually, as we know today, granting the from a fair amount, a surprising amount, of coercive power over the non-from. Adayom Azeh, so far... Uh, you can't get married or divorced in Israel except through a base in Orthodox. So far, if a Cohen, in Israel, if a Cohen wants to marry a Grusha, it ain't going to happen. 
Can't do it. That's not fair. I'm a coin. I met this girl. She's great. We love each other, etc., etc. Really, we really do. And we can have a great life together. Tough luck, baby. <laughs> Tough luck. Now, what they do in Israel, they go to Cyprus or something like that. But Hogufa, the very fact that Israelis have put up for, what is it, 70 years now? Whatever. Um, with this shtick that, you know, have to do uh, this roundabout way. I'll go to Cyprus and get a Geisha thing and get it recognized by Israel is itself a tremendous recognition that according to the regular Israeli law, you got to go follow the halacha. And there are other areas of life in which the Orthodox uh, have uh, a dominant control, which is funny. I mean, I don't think Ben-Gurion intended to be a halachic state, but as we know, um, you know, what you intend is one thing, and the way things turn out is another way, and it's a very complicated situation. As we speak, there's a new government in Israel, you know, Bennett and all that, and I see that they're, you know, seriously considering trying to undo some of these things and all the rest of it. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But for a long time, close to a century, it's been this way. So, there has been a revival of a Kehillah in Israel, so to speak, on a national level, certainly in a way that isn't true in America. There's nothing like that, obviously, in, in, in America or in other countries. Um, and it's very complicated, as we all know, because, you know, from the, I mean, as far as the Agud is concerned, their ideal, not going to happen, the ideal is they would win 61 seats and then bring back the coercion. Right? I mean, if you ask the Aguda or the Haredi parties, or even the, to be perfectly honest, maybe even the, the Mizrahi type parties, if it depends who they are. You know, what's your ideal? What's your goal? We like to bring back um, the, the coercion. Now, Americans don't know what to do with this because Americans are always like, you know, on the one hand, they want Kiruv, <laughs> they want persuasion. Americans generally don't feel so comfortable with coercion, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. When uh, before the the um, uh, Corona hit, I used to have a class years ago in yeshiva once a week on non-Jewish history. And just for the heck of it, just for fun, when I tried to bring out this point in class, I would say, I would I would pose the question in the following terms: Suppose you knew somebody who's going to be Michal Shabbos, but you have the po- the the power to lock that person up, you could get away with this. You could tie their hands and lock them up in a closet from Friday night to Saturday night. So Lamai said they would not be able to be Michal Shabbos in America. They wouldn't be able to be Michal Shabbos. Would, and, and let's say you could do it in such a way, no witnesses and so forth, that um, you could get away with it. Would you do it? You have a cousin, you have a friend, you have somebody you know, and you could physically prevent them from being Michal Shabbos. Even though they'd hate you and they're kicking and screaming and this, that, and the other. Would you do it? And it's very interesting. The class always breaks into two parts. Sometimes it's 50-50. Sometimes it's 90-10. Sometimes 10-90. You know, different uh, percentages. And these are Yeshiva guys. And, you know, Team A versus Team B. Team A says, yeah, lock them up. Because from the halachic perspective, anything you do to prevent a Jew from being Michal Shabbos is supposed to do. And the heck with his personal autonomy. And the other way is, no, uh, that's terrible. You can try to be Makar of him, this, that, and the other, but the force, he'll, he'll hate you even more, and he'll be against it, and, you know, 
all those kind of arguments. And there you have, in a nutshell, the question of coercion. It's appropriateness or non-appropriateness in the modern era. It's just interesting in this way. So in America, we have it this way. In Israel, you have it that way. There are Americans who live in Israel. There's Israelis who live in America. It's a complicated world. Now, let me add to that. Um, I would say, and so would you, that in general, we could say the following. The from world started to go also in a crisis around 1800, and was hit with modernity, whether the dissolution of the Kehillahs, as I mentioned before, whether the rise of all kind of new uh, ideas, um, there are megatrends such as the Industrial Revolution and the urbanization and the leaving of small communities and the coming to places where there was public school and there wasn't Jewish schools. Uh, they're all kind of, they're intellectual trends, you know, the historicism and things like that. And uh, I've spoken about these things in other contexts at great length. But the whole thing put together, which we call modernity, was like dropping an A-bomb on the front. And for very heavy groups, to a very heavy extent, it um, drew people away from Frumkite. And that's why, as you go throughout the 1800s, early 1900s, it's like a free fall. In every decade, more and more people were leaving from Yiddishkeit. Including, as we know very well, the children of Gedolim and things like that. It just happened, right? I'm not going to go through a list now of who's Children and grandchildren were a communist, a socialist, or a big secular Zionist, or who knows what, right? But we, all, we all know this, okay? Which means the parents, as big as they were, as firm as they were, weren't able to keep the children on the reservation. This is a, a commonplace. We know this. Now, uh, what that reflects is the, um, the dissolution of the coercive a power of the from communities. It's a cruel thing to say. You'd like to think that if your father's the Chavez Chaim or whoever it is, that itself should inspire you, you know, to stay from life is not like that. Had it been a century or two earlier, the kid wouldn't be able to go off to Derek for a whole bunch of reasons. That's how life was at that time. But in the modern era you could, and many did. In fact, I would say that as the 1800s went on and the early 1900s, in every decade, there's an increased hemorrhaging out of the ranks of the from. I mean, I could give a talk on this, which I'm not going to now, but because the 1820s were more, and 1830s were more, and 1840s even more, 1850s even more, 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 1900s even more, 1910, you know what I mean. Okay? Ad kedekach, then I think we would all roughly agree that by the time of the Holocaust, it hit rock bottom. Okay? But, so, you know, there's very little uh, coercive power unless you wanted to be coerced. But then it's not coercion anymore by the time you get to the Holocaust. However, in an interesting screwball set of circumstances, after the end of World War II, there began, there began as we know, the climb back up of the from world in general. And again, you know, you can do the 1945-1955 and 1955-1965 and 
1965, 1975, and so forth. And little by little, that's the great story of our lifetimes. Uh, if we inhabit this little cultural world, uh, I think that, uh, how should I put it? We have seen the revival of all these old forms. The Litvisha world, the Hasidic world, now to some degree the Sephardic world, the whole notion of L'Hachzir Tarli Yoshin is not only a Bad Yosef kind of slogan, it's an unspoken slogan for a lot of people. Right? It's an unspoken slogan for a lot of people. And so, it's characterized um, the times in which we live. Now again, you have to live through it. I'm older than many people listening to this. Um, I'm younger than some. <laughs> and uh, maybe those of you who are very young may not be fully aware of all these, so you can take it for granted. But that's been the circumstances since 1945. It's been a slow uh, march back up, right? Now, they haven't replaced what they lost, and the firm world is still pretty doggone small, uh, but it's, much, it's growing in leaps and bounds. Uh, it's growing in leaps and bounds. And so the result is that... Um, we now have a new social reality. And not only a new social reality, but you actually have created in some places, particularly in Israel, a reality that never before existed. The Ainu. All from communities. If you live in B'nai Brak and many places, Yushalayim and Kiryat Sefer and all that stuff, you have something that never existed before. The entire population is number one Jewish and number two from in fact, in many places, number three, Haredi. <laughs> this was not in Europe. Do you understand? If you lived in Lithuania, most of the people around you were Lithuanian Goyim. Of course, there were Jews. But the rove was that way. And they dressed whatever way they wanted to dress. And they didn't ask no permission from you. And they talked whatever they wanted to talk. And um, if you're Hasidic, it's Poland. It's the Polish, the Ukrainians. I mean, that was a huge population. Even when there's a, a fairly large Hasidic population, you only saw them when they got together, like for, you know, for a Tish, a Shabbos, a Yontav, or something like that, if I bring it. But typically speaking, people lived in their towns, even villages. And the road, yeah, you know, I mean, there, there were some places where the road was Jews. Most places the road was Goyim. And even the place the road was Jews, plenty of Goyim all over the place passing through. And you can't tell them what to do. I think I mentioned last week or two weeks ago, somebody said something to the Belzerov. I read in that article, uh, you know, about the walking around Prizizdik and in Tel Aviv, something along those lines. And he said, and Premishlan, back in Poland, if a chassid had a store uh, and customers came in, you know, the guy didn't dress a Prizizdik? The answer is, that's, you know, that's the world. Meaning... You do your best, but you couldn't you couldn't control it. Today it's not like that, as you and I know very well. The Haredim have succeeded in creating with government money entire communities which everybody's exactly the same. Um so in other words, B'nai Brock is not Vilna. Vilna was Rove Goyim, B'nai Brock is no Goyim. Or again, you know, uh whatever those uh, the, the Beitar, you know, all, all the the gills that are popping up in Israel. This means that there has been restored to some degree, uh, in a different way, but to some degree, 
I would say, the coercive nature of the Jewish community, the from community, for the people living in that community. Uh, the coercive nature from community. So we have the revival in a, in a, in a funny way of the Kehillahs of old, but not in exactly the same way. And it's not a formal business where people, you know, vote for, a, you know, a, 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 the, the board of directors and then they appoint the Bays and all the rest of it. It's a different sociology. It may morph in that direction, but it hasn't yet. Uh, but nevertheless, that means the following. Just as there was a break of about 150 years, Lagabe, the creation of a legal, autonomous, coercive community from the collapse of those things around 1800 to the recreation of it around, in 1948, but in a different way, State of Israel. Similarly, there has been the collapse of the coercive communities around 1800 Be'erich that once upon a time existed and kept everybody pretty much in the same mode of thinking, so we call it the middle of the road. Um, and then it collapsed, and now it's been revived. Again, not in the exact same circumstances, but it's been revived. Because we don't have formal coercive powers with the from communities, but, it, but we have, even in America, tools of coercion or pressure. Maybe that's a better word. That they employ, right or wrong, to like enforce conformity. So, for example, in America, I think they'll say this: "You do this and this, no school will take your kids." In. I mean, that's that's a biggie. It's legal. That's a biggie. What are you going to do with your kids? You know, things like things like that. Okay. Or if you have some job that's that's somehow or other connected with the from community, they get threatened to fire you. You know, things like this. Which all this happens all the time. And that way, if you go off the reservation, as they say before, is a price to pay. Now, strictly speaking, they can't do nothing to you. So you say, I won't send my kids, you know, to any of the schools in Lakewood or whatever. Okay, where are you going to send them? You know, I mean, you can send them to a public school if you want to. But you're not going to do that. So it's, it's, it's the use of certain tools of coercion in the sense of pressure. You see? So it's very interesting. So there was a break in both cases, a hiatus of a long time. And with the revival of traditional Judaism uh, in our lifetime, whatever, so we see the revival of the attempts to find ways to reintroduce coercion into Jewish life. The problem is that once upon a time, long ago, coercion was with every religion. In other words, European culture was a coercive culture. Nowadays, by contrast, is a non-coercive culture in the area of religion. Okay? Uh, and so if you're from, you're going against the trend of the culture. That's why people have cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, you say it's a good thing to pressure people to be from another one. It's outrageous that they want to force people to do things they don't want to do. And it's just strange that we live in times in which both these Factors are, are playing side by side. <clears throat> Excuse me, side by side. I hope I'm, well, I'm. I hope you're following the argument I'm making. Now, um, now the problem with coercion is who gets to do the coercing, and 
once you have a coercive political structure of any sort, it lends itself to abuse. That's a lot of the stuff that happened with the Chaim Walder business, but but that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's a lot of that across the board. And there are a lot of things people don't like, but they're afraid to talk about it, for example, for, for one reason or another. Or many examples of the problematic nature of coercion. Um, the main one being, I would say, there's no responsibility to the voters, to the public. You see, in the modern political state, secular state, the state has coercion, but the check and balance on that is that there are elections, and if people think the coercion being used in the wrong way, they can vote you out. By definition, in a religious context, it doesn't work that way. And, you know, the charisma is of a different nature. And so you can end up with coercion, and there's no way to, uh, to, to, there's no way to deal with its abuse. You see? Everybody wants coercion to be used in the right way, Nobody wants coercion to be uh, abused. But uh, coercion is going to lend itself to abuse. Right? It's going to lend itself to that. And we don't know how... We're struggling with this. We don't know how to do it. Because we don't have the institutional natures. The only things that could modify this, perhaps, would be the rise, which may happen among the younger generation of a movement to create, like, formal Kahila structures or something along those lines with people who vote and pay dues and, you know, that sort of thing. But the nature of religious authority in our era is very charismatic. And it's also modified by the newspapers, as I mentioned last night. So, how do you know he's a Godel? Is it because he read it in the in the magazine? <laughs> you see? Most people don't know what Godel is. Uh, you hear about these names. Uh, I just mentioned to another person today, Raise your hand if you can tell me who's on the Moetzes Gedolia Torah right now in, in America. I don't think most people know. Uh, it's a funny world, but, you know, the so it's not easy to create, you know, um, stable political structures in a country which is so charistic in that regard, like America. And in Israel, you have other problems, you know, with different competing groups. So we have the re-emergence of coercion without the checks and balances that are on it. Um, the only checks and balances that I can think of is the internet, where people just write in, you know, anonymously and criticize things. But then you're back to, like, Louis XIV and Marie Antoinette. The only way people could protest was by putting up posters on Pashkville and on the, on the thing, making fun of the king. It's, it's not a good system. It's not a good system. Uh, all these have taken place during the lifetime of my brother and afterwards. He was born in 44, passed away in 2000. Uh, another 20 years have passed or so, 22 years. The same trends are, are still there. It's interesting. Um, in his generation, they didn't even give any thought to this. Because the main thing was to, to, to revive, marry, raise a family, have kids that are from, launch the ships properly, and hope for the best. You do your best as, as a parent to do this. Support yeshivas, base Yaakov schools, this, that, and the other. Uh, you know, institutions of of education. And we've done a fair job, you know, however you want to define it, of recreating schools. Not just yeshivas, but schools. But we haven't done a great job of, of creating kahillas. Okay? It's been so long since the old one, about 200 years, that no one has any institutional memory. And um, 
just like the day schools had to kind of start from scratch and feel their way forward. Think, for example, of Sarashnir or things like that, right? So uh, if there will be a Kehillah business or something along those lines, uh, real and not just some little group that calls itself a Kehillah, uh, they'll have to feel their way forward and there'll be trial and error, you know? Uh, at least that's what it seems to me. That seems to me. But the from, speaking from a historical, and with this I'll bring it to an end, speaking to it from a historical perspective, I think it's important for us to realize that there was a certain Mahalach, and then it was a break of about 150 years, and then there's attempts to, you know, rebuild that which was lost, but they're um, faltering steps towards figuring out how to rebuild the autonomous course of Kehillahs in a manner that works in the 21st century, okay? Uh, because we simply don't have today, you know, the ability, I don't know if it's desirable or not desirable, that's, a, that's debatable, to like really, you know, coerce people, although they would like to. And what I mean by that is like this, tell everybody you can't have a cell phone. You can say whatever you want. The kids are going to do a cell phone anyway. Be like in Israel, they have two. You know, one they show and one they don't show. <laughs> when I was a kid, it used to be a joke. Uh, how's it work? Uh, you have this guy, he's American, he has one set of books. And then the, the, the Jewish guy has two sets of books. You know, one he shows and one he doesn't show. And the Italian guy has three sets of books. You know, one he shows and one he doesn't show. And one he doesn't even let himself see. You know, those kind of jokes. So that's what is with the cell phones and the other things, especially as the as the technology gets more and more sophisticated. As I always say, it's able to leapfrog the barricades that we erect around us. So I have to figure something for the uh, for the fact that that contemporary culture, with its good and especially its bad, is it's 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 uh, almost impossible to keep out. And so you have to figure some different model, but that requires, as they say before, an efficient Kehillah system. Uh, and not just a speech or a rant by this person or that person, because uh, those things don't work. These are all part of the challenges uh, of the era after the lifetime of my brother. Anyway, I just wanted to share, like I say, a few thoughts. Uh, I thought for presentation, especially after the talk I gave last night. And uh, with that, again, his yard site is tomorrow. Just tonight, tomorrow, it sounds like I say Kaddish for him. Uh, and the grandchildren, the others, I'm sure to make a seam or something like that. And uh, I'll just end by singing Shamash and Heaven Aliyah. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.